Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? And I would add there's a future component to this as well. Like we could say, are you afraid of being tired? Are you afraid or anxious about being worn out? Do you think you might be burned out once again? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I have, that phrase has stuck with me since the very first time I read this. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to work with Jesus. I want to learn to live freely and to walk lightly, don't you? There's a psalm that describes exactly how we can learn to do that. It's by far the most repeated, most memorized, and most well-known of all 150 psalms. And like fully half of them, at least, it was written by David. So before we get to that psalm in the weeks ahead, I'd like to spend our time together today taking a brief look at the author first. David was a remarkable man. Think about it for a moment. He was a musician so skilled that the current day king, King Saul, would summon David to play in Saul's presence because his playing would banish depression like nothing else could. He was such a formidable warrior that he won a battle against a great champion, a giant of a man, Goliath, when he wasn't even old enough yet to shave. Later on, he attracted the greatest soldiers of his day to serve under him, and he subjugated his nation's enemies in a way that Israel had never experienced before and would never experience again. He was a fiercely loyal friend and a courageous shepherd. He tells King Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. And I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When he turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it, and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, this was about as he was about to approach Goliath, will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Excuse me. <clears throat> Now imagine you're David. This is an authentic rod, by the way, from Israel. This is exactly what they look like. This was in use. Imagine you're David for a moment. And a bear comes along. You're watching your father's sheep. All you have is this stick. What would you do? What would you do? Like, I would barely, barely, <laughs> give it a second thought. I'm not lying. <laughs> and I'd run. How about you? See, the only one that you could turn to would say, come on, sheep, let's, let's do this. Sheep aren't known for their courage. Every lamb for himself, you might say. The sheep aren't going to fight. But David stayed. And David fought. And David learned. It's very interesting what David doesn't say here. He doesn't say, 
through those things, I learned I could defeat the lions and bears in my life. He doesn't say, I learned that that's what I can do. I learned, instead, he says, I learned that God, who delivered me from lions and bears, who delivered me, can deliver me also from any challenge that comes before me. I want to tell you, friends, you can hear God is faithful. God will deliver me a thousand times. And a lot of people probably have heard it at least that many times. And you can read God is faithful and God will deliver me in a hundred books. And a lot of people probably have. But you will only come to really believe it and to know it when you test it out in real life for yourself in your own life. Maybe you have a difficult project at work. Maybe there's something at school that is looming. And you say, God, with your help, I'm going to go after that bear. And your heart will get a little stronger, a little bolder in exercising faith. Maybe you've got a parenting challenge. There's a behavioral trend in one of your children, and it's going, to, it's going in the wrong direction. But it will take energy, and it will take time to confront it. And there's a part of you that's tempted to just look the other way, to hope it goes away and ignore it. Or you could say, God, with your help, I'm going after that lion. And your heart will get a little stronger, a little bolder in exercising faith. Maybe you have a grumpy spouse. You could pretend not to notice. Or you could pray, God, with your help, I'm going after that bear I'm married to. Someone once asked my wife Jennifer if she herself ever woke up grumpy. And she told them, no, she usually lets him sleep. It was in everyday moments when nobody was watching and in a totally unglamorous, lowest of lowest jobs as a shepherd, that David, day after day after day after day, built this heart that so pleased God. <clears throat> he'd take on a lion. He'd take on a bear. Anything. But he was also a poet. He wrote psalms that expressed the longing of the human heart to God so deeply that now in our day, thousands of years later, they remain still the single most moving and influential devotional literature ever written. He was a statesman of such wisdom and political school that Israel achieved the highest level of economic well-being and political stability under his reign. His reign would forever be remembered as the golden age of Israel. And it would exist so powerfully in people's memories that they would refer to the Messiah as the son of David. There were lots of other in the parental lineage. But he was known as the son of David because they hoped that he would reclaim the glory of the days of David. He was a handsome dude too. We're told that he was attractive physically and that men and women both were drawn to his charismatic presence. He was a magnetic figure. All this in one guy. He's one of the central people of the Old Testament. Abram, Abram had 14 chapters devoted to him. Elijah, 10. David has 66 chapters devoted to him. He's mentioned 600 times in the Old Testament and 60 times in the New Testament. That's all good, but what does God say is so remarkable about David? What drew God to him was certainly not his external accomplishments. 
David was no saint. He made some terrible mistakes for which he paid in the consequences. He stooped so low once as to intentionally set up a man named Uriah to be killed in battle so that he could take for his own Uriah's wife Bathsheba. It looked like the misfortune of war when it happened. Today we would call it plausible deniability. David thought that the great danger of his life was that somebody somewhere somehow might find out about this. But of course, that wasn't his greatest danger. His greatest danger was that no one would find out and his soul would be utterly destroyed. It's the same for us, by the way. There's, that's always the way it is with sin. We're so afraid that someone might find out. But that's not our great danger. Our great danger is that nobody will find out and we'll live in darkness. We'll get used to darkness. We'll come to actually like darkness. David covered this one up from just about everybody. But there is one who sees everything with utter moral clarity. Excuse me. <coughs> and he will call us into account. But the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And his justice will not, cannot be evaded. And he won't be taken in by the cleverest cover-up ever. The Lord sent Nathan, who was a prophet, to David. The Lord has the last word. He always, by the way, has the last word. David has been playing God for a long time now, probably for over a year because the baby that he and Bathsheba conceived has been born already. Nathan has to find some way to get past all of David's defenses and the hardness now of David's heart. He will tell, he decides, a story to David. There were two men in a certain town, he starts, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe, a ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food with it. He drank, this lamb drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took this little ewe lamb but that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to visit him. <clears throat> Feeling something? Yeah, David did too. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David gets all fired up about this guy. How could anybody do such a thing? And David is just like us. We can get all fired up when somebody's sin kind of just gets out there and we forget all about our own. You ever find yourself thinking, I am so grateful I came today because I know God has directed this message right at the person sitting next to me. Ever find that your elbows are the most used part of your body during some messages? This is what David does. And we all can do it. We love to get righteous indignation. Why? Because it makes us feel righteous. And David in the midst, having a little break here.
you know, we have some faithful servants here. If you notice, there's always some water up here and the podium's always in place. I just appreciate those who serve behind the scenes so much. Excuse me. <clears throat> so David has this righteous indignation. It's making him feel righteous. And David, in the midst of all this darkness, is capable of so much self-deception that he says, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. Basically, who is this guy? He deserves to die. And then comes one of the most courageous statements in all of Scripture. Ranks right up there with Esther. Imagine now what's going on inside of Nathan. He's standing before the king who has just shown that he can be utterly ruthless. He had no trouble sacrificing the life of Uriah and many of his own soldiers. But Nathan doesn't hesitate. He looks David in the eye and he says, Who is this man? You the man, David. You the man. This is your sin. This is how far you've fallen. This is your heart. This is your story. You the man. And then for how, for, for who knows how long, there is silence. Perhaps there's a fleeting thought to think about covering this up. Nathan is just one guy. Get rid of him and I'm home free. No one will ever know I can make up for this still. I can be a really good king if I try. <coughs> I expect there was a voice saying something like that to David because he's been listening to that kind of a voice for some time now. But somewhere, somehow, there's another still small voice speaking. And that voice, I think, whispers to David about those days where, when he was a shepherd boy and God would rescue him from his enemies that would come after him. That voice might have whispered to him about a day long ago when he was full of idealism and vision and he saw this pagan Philistine giant and David stood up to him and God delivered him. And maybe he recalled his great friend Jonathan who loved him so much and who gave him his own robe and his own sword, recognizing God's anointing on David rather than upon himself. And maybe he remembered King Saul. And maybe that voice said, David, that's what you're turning into. There is some Saul in you, David. And pretty soon, Saul is all you'll be. So for who knows how long, David stands at this crossroads, two roads before him. And we all face these crossroads. And then this miracle happens. And a heart that had been hard and cold and stony and dead just melts and starts beating again. And the soul that had been walking in darkness for so long took its first weak, feeble steps into the light. For who knows how long David just stands there in that moment. And his life and Nathan's life hang in the balance. And then David speaks. I'm the man. I've sinned against the Lord. I am the man who does not deserve to live. That's my sin. That's my story. I'm the man. And then David writes these words. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth. I will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifice you want is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. 
This is what drew God to him. It was certainly not his external accomplishments. It was his heart. It was a heart deal. Let's flash back now to where we first meet David. And Israel has been now freed from Egypt. They had lived in the promised land under a series of judges like Joshua, Gideon, and Samson. And the last judge that led Israel was named Samuel. But the people didn't want a judge. They wanted a king. So God had Samuel anoint a king, the impressive guy named Saul stood head and shoulders literally over the people. But he grew increasingly corrupt and violent and evil to the point that God gave up on Saul and appointed a man after his own heart. God tells Samuel, Samuel, go and anoint a new king. And Samuel says, but God, you know, there's, I've often said I'd love to do a series on the great buts of the Bible, you know, the but God saw Noah, but God did this, but God, you know, there's another side to that. There's the responses whenever God inter, intercedes in someone's life, and it's the, yeah, but God, not me, right? It, Moses does it. I mean, it just goes on throughout the Bible, and now, now here is Samuel going up, but God, yeah, you know, Saul's still king. If I go around kind of anointing another one, uh, my name is going to be pretty much you know, history. But God says, trust me, go. And Samuel goes. So Samuel goes to this little obscure village called Bethlehem to find the son of a man named Jesse. Jesse introduces his firstborn son. He must be the man, but God says he's not the man. And so he goes on through each of the next six sons by name, and not one of them is the man. So Samuel says to Jesse, well, this is strange because God sent me here. Is this it? Seems like kind of a dumb question, doesn't it? Don't you think Jesse would be aware of how many sons he has? But Jesse says, almost as an afterthought, it gives us kind of a picture of just, you know, where David was on this, on this whole, you know, firstborn down to lastborn kind of thing. Well, well, yeah, I guess they're still the youngest. Now, the interesting thing here is so far, every single son has had a name. Jesse doesn't even mention David's name. Well, there's the young guy, you know, the young one out there. And you need to understand that in Hebrew, the term the youngest meant not merely the last born, it also meant the lowest in rank. There was real significance in that day to the whole birth order thing. How many of you here were not the firstborn in your family? See, when I was here by myself, I couldn't do this stuff, right? It's so good to have you here and see some hands. Thank you. How many of you ever noticed, those of you who raised your hands, that the firstborn had certain unfair advantages, like in the photo album, right? Did you ever notice this? Jesse's photo album was something like this. He'd say, here's the pictures of our firstborn Eliab. Here's Eliab being born. Here's Eliab when he's one hour old. Here's a picture of Eliab on his second day and so on. Every day of Eliab's life because he's the firstborn. And then there's number two, and it's Abinadab. And here's Abinadab being born. Here's Abinadab going to preschool and so on. Then there's number three. Here's Shammah being born. Here's Shammah going to first grade. Then you get down to this last photo album, and it's really light, and you open it up, and here's David being born. Maybe we need to get more pictures of David. Jesse says, they're still the youngest, but he's out with the sheep. He's not the man. That's basically what he's saying is, he's not the guy. And then Samuel says, go send for him. We'll wait. 
And the picture here is just something, it's kind of a little humor that God adds into this whole picture. Now imagine what that was like. That had to take considerable time. David's not just around the corner watching the sheep. The sheep are out there somewhere in the wilderness. It's going to take time to track down David, to track down the sheep. But Samuel says, we're going to stand until he comes. So they're all just standing there. I picture these, these sons like they're the first runners up in the Miss Canada pageant. You know, they, they've, they've got the pose. They've got their one leg out in front of the other, and they're just kind of like, I can't believe he wants to see David. Like, that's ridiculous, right? They're all just standing there, like, and they have to stand. Like, that's the deal. They, who knows how many? It could have been hours they're standing there trying to look like things are okay when they're hoping that somehow they find David dead, right? Something so they can take over. Finally, David comes, and God looks at him and says, that's him, that's the man. Now, there's a theme going on here. It's kind of a thread that's followed in and through the Old Testament that's kind of very subtle here, but there's a comfort to it. Ishmael is born first, but God chooses Isaac. Esau comes first, but God has the line to David go through Jacob. Ten other brothers are born first, but God chooses Joseph. Seven other boys are born first, but David becomes king. Now, what is God saying? Is God saying that firstborn kids are all spoiled brats and he likes the middle or younger kids better? No, that's not part of it because I'm a firstborn. It can't be it. I'm special. Not in those days, you see, everything went through the firstborn. All the rights, all the property, all the prestige, all the privileges, all the power. That's the way the structures went in those days. And God is saying, not so much anymore. I'm breaking into the ordinary cultural practices of human life, and I'm making a new thing here. Old limitations and old boundaries about who counts and who doesn't count, they don't apply anymore. Not in God's kingdom. God's doing something new here. And he's not bound or beholden to any human system or, or powers. God's doing his thing now. And his kingdom is going to shake things up somewhat. God summarizes this when he says to Samuel, human beings consider outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. What it points out is that the human race inevitably tends to obsess over external appearances. We know that, don't we? We tend to think that charm, attractiveness, and ability is all that matters. So if I have those things in obvious ways, then I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to stand out. And if I don't, well, <laughs> then I'm kind of insignificant. I don't know that I matter. And we forget about the heart. When God says over and over, and what God is saying to some of you right now, is that the kingdom, in his kingdom, every single person matters. Perhaps that's what you need to hear. You matter to God. You mattered enough that he sent his son to die for you. That's what we're devoting our lives to around here, isn't it? In God's kingdom, everybody matters. Every single one counts. In God's kingdom, everybody's got something to offer. 
In God's kingdom, everybody's contribution matters. The last born as well as the first. So if you take the best gifts you've been given, whatever they are, and you don't compare them to anybody else, and if you take a heart full of devotion and you lay those gifts and you lay your heart at God's feet, watch out because that's kingdom dynamite. God said to Samuel, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And that's what he found in David. Now, of course, then the question just comes ripping to the surface, right? What makes David's heart so appealing to God then? What is it about David's heart that makes it a heart after God's own heart? And I want to walk through four things that, that make David's heart great. There's probably more. And I'd invite you to just do a little heart check on these four as we go through them and see how your heart measures up. Number one is this. David's heart was characterized by a sense of wild abandon. His heart was characterized by a sense of being fully abandoned to God. In Psalm 9, David says, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. And that recurs over and over again. In Psalm 86, Psalm 111, David had an unguarded passion and heart, and he never held it back. He wasn't calculating and cautious, and I better keep my heart sealed up in here in case it gets hurt. He was generous and he was free. The ark was being brought to Jerusalem and that moment symbolized the fact that God was present and reigning with his people. And when that happened, the text says, and think about what this means, what this would look like. David, the exalted king of the country, dancing and leaping before the God with all his might. I, want, I wonder when was the last time that you were so full of gratitude to God that you jumped up and down, that you just had to express with some measure of wild abandon, whatever wild abandon looks like to you, a heart that is on fire with the goodness of God. I just can't keep it in. I got to dance. I got to shout. I got to jump. Well, David was wildly passionate about God. He had a heart that was on fire for the goodness and with the goodness of God. He was jumping up and down. And then there's his wife. His wife was kind of embarrassed by all this, as you might imagine, and tried to rein him back in. Have you ever seen that? A wife trying to rein her husband back in? No, I don't think it ever happens. She said to David, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar, notice that word just likes to slide that one in there, as any vulgar fellow would. And David said, and I love this line, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. I think a part of why I love this so much is I was raised with English and Scandinavian roots, and neither are known for their wild and reckless hearts. We tend to be cautious, self-protective. We're not real big on the leaping thing. I just love to see David kind of go beyond this, give his heart to God in wild abandon. We see this characteristic a number of times. There's a story where David and his men are pinned down by a band of Philistines. It was apparently a kind of siege deal, and Davis has a that David has a tremendous thirst. He cries out for water from this well he knows by Jerusalem. That's kind of wild and abandoned. It's like, yeah, I, I just thinking of that water and that well by Jerusalem. And there, 
three of his top warriors risk their lives, break through enemy lines, make it to the well, draw the water, carry it back to David. This is a moment of unbelievable drama. And of course, all the troops are there and they're watching this. This, this is like, we did all this for you, David. We, we love you, David. And they too are as thirsty as he is. But there's just enough water for the king. It's all they could carry. And David is so moved by their courage and their sacrifice, he takes the water and he pours it out on the ground. He's so moved by what they did that in spite of all his thirst, he resolves, number two, I'll be with you in thirst and deprivation as well as in prosperity. I will not use the kingship, my kingship, to get my comfort at the expense of your pain. We're in this together, you and me, win or lose, live or die. It's like a scene out of a Mel Gibson movie in Scotland or something, right? But it really happened. One time David was commanded to build an altar on a threshing floor of a man named Aruna, the Jebusite. And this man saw David and his men coming and he said to them, Hey, guys, take my threshing floor and take my oxen for a sacrifice and my wood for fuel for the fire. It's all my gift to you, please. And David's heart is just seized with gratitude and resolve. And he says, I'm not going to sacrifice to the Lord my, my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. From a cost-benefit standpoint, this doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a free gift. It's just been offered to me. I didn't go looking for it. This guy offered it. I didn't have to pay anything for it. This is going to be great. We hear a lot about impulse buying. When was the last time you indulged in impulse giving? Impulse giving that cost you something. David was an impulse giver. One day he just broke out in prayer to God. Here I am living in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a plain tent. You need a house, God. And he starts to build the temple. He says, I'll build you a house, O God. I want to have a heart like this. How about you? I don't want to go to my grave with a heart that was cold and calculating and protected and hidden and safe and hard. I don't, I don't think you do either. I long to have a heart like that and to be part of a fellowship of hearts like this, a, a fellowship of passionate hearts, impulse givers. I want to worship God with more passion than ever before in my life. Be moved to expressions of gratitude or to tears of joy or maybe sadness or conviction like never before. I long for each of us to be moved to give to God our hearts with a sense of abandon and sacrifice even and the generosity, too, that marked David. That some of you will say, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. That for some, you're going to show courage. You're going to see some enemy in this world that is opposed to God, and you'll say, I'll take that one on. Sign me up. I'll use the gifts he's given me. I'll try saying these difficult words. You're going to show courage in a relationship or a ministry or an act of service that you never knew you had. You didn't know it was in you because, frankly, it's not just in you. It's coming to you. You don't know that now, but it's true. I trust that we continue to develop hearts that are wildly, wildly abandoned to God. Third thing about David's heart, David's heart was characterized by deep reflection. Not just by wild abandon, not just by kind of this, this ability to, to incorporate everybody and to recognize that we're all in this together and we've got resolve to hang in there, but by deep reflection. 
This is a typical comment from David at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, this is a rare combination when you think about just these first two traits. First traits, right? A passionate action on one hand, you know, this wild abandon and this commitment, and then deep reflection on the other. But that was David, all of them combined. And I'll tell you what I think. I think David's heart was formed in all those years. He was alone with God as a shepherd. I think that's the only explanation for a soul that was so deep that it can write words like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. David spent much of his life waiting. First he tended sheep, and then there's this amazing day when Samuel comes up and anoints him king. Imagine the next day. Because David just doesn't march into Jerusalem after this and sit on the throne. Saul is still there. What happens the next day? What does David do the next day? He goes back to shepherding the sheep. Just imagine this happening to you. You've just been anointed king of Israel. And there's no one to tell about it except the sheep. Hey, sheep, you there. I'm the king. Not a whole lot of excitement coming back. All those years he was leading a flock of sheep through the wilderness, they were not wasted years. He was learning to be alone with God. Then there were all those years he hid from Saul. He lived in caves. I've told you before, God does some of his greatest work in caves. Just check out Easter and you'll see what I mean. David ran from one spot to another. Those were not wasted years. He was growing very deep with God. He wrote many of the Psalms during that period. In solitude and quiet, God was shaping a great heart, a deep heart. And God wants to do that for us as well, if we'll give him a chance. I think that I can make a case that the years when David's heart was most vulnerable to sin was after he reached the top and became king and had everything that he needed and wanted and could get by with on his own and he no longer needed God or needed to be alone with God. I want to have a heart that goes deep with God. How about you? Psalm 1 says this. It's been attributed by many to David, although it doesn't specifically say so. Godly people are like trees planted by rivers of water. That person, that person hurried, frenzied, and deep, that's not this person. You can't develop roots fast. Roots don't work that way. When was the last time you described someone by saying, that person is so hurried and frenzied and deep? No. You can be hurried or you can be deep. You can be one or the other, very hard, if not impossible to be both. You have to choose which person will you be. Now, this doesn't mean you have to quit your job and go out and find you know, some sheep somewhere so you can be a shepherd, but it does mean you will have to guard regular, unhurried times alone with God. Are you guarding that? You have to guard that. You'll have to arrange for that. Maybe you'll want to write some psalms of your own and become a psalmist yourself to God. But I'll promise you this. If you will immerse yourself in the prayers of David and his psalms, your heart won't be the same. It will get deeper. It really will. David had a heart that was characterized by a wild abandon. I want a heart that, like that. He had a heart that was characterized by deep reflection. He had a heart that was characterized by resolve and commitment. I want a heart like that. But I think the other thing that cries out about David's heart is maybe what I want most of all, because David's heart was characterized right down to the core 
by stubborn love. The most stubborn, amazing love. In Psalm 78, it says about David that he shepherded the people with integrity of heart. The idea here is that it was an undivided heart. It's the opposite of being fickle, having a fickle heart. He loved people with the loyal heart of a shepherd who just keeps loving the sheep, even the most obstinate sheep. You think of the people in David's life. Here's old Saul, once a promising young king himself, and then just increasingly more corrupt, tormented by pathological jealousy, consistently and constantly deceiving. Several times he tries to kill David right there. And what's amazing is how, through it all, David still loves him. Twice David could have killed Saul himself, and he would have been justified, but he refused to do it, and he expressed his loyalty back to Saul. And when Saul finally died, David wrote one of the most beautiful poems ever written to lament for him. How the mighty have fallen, he says. Some of you have probably heard that phrase before. That's where it comes from, from David. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. How the mighty have fallen in battle. How could David find tears for a man that had been after him, trying to kill him? He knew all about Saul's faults better than anybody, but he also knew Saul's possibilities, and he loved him to the end. And then there's Jonathan, Saul's son, who would have been his main rival for the throne. You would expect they would be at each other's throats, but they had one of the greatest friendships ever recorded in history. And when they had to be separated, the Bible says, they wept together, and I love the last phrase, But David wept the most. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts this. He says, I think that Jonathan's friendship entered David's soul in a way that Saul's hatred never could. And then there's his own son, Absalom, tried to overthrow his own father. And in the end, Absalom was defeated and killed in battle. David got word that his forces had been victorious and his throne was secure. But his only response was to mourn for his boy. Oh, Absalom, my son, he said, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. When David loved you, you stayed loved because there was a grace and love in his heart for the most stubborn sinner. And I want to love like that. I thought of my family as I was pulling this message together, and I thought of my life, and I thought of my friends, and I frankly thought of you. I thought of the people I crossed paths with. And if I could get to the end of my life and have them say about me, he loved with a stubborn love. And he had a grace and love in his heart for fallen people. And when he loved somebody, they stayed loved. If I could get to the end of my life and have that said about me, I think I'd be a success in God's eyes, no matter what else I did or didn't do. And if that can't be said of me, no matter what else I did, I wonder if that would measure up. I want a heart that loves with stubborn love. How about you? Maybe the most stubborn of all was his love for God. He writes these wonderful words at the end of his most famous psalm. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Maybe David was an old man by now when he said these words, with long gray beard and a wrinkled face. Maybe he remembered when he was young and handsome and Samuel poured oil over him and said the mysterious words that started it all and changed his life. Maybe he remembered how on that day so long ago the Spirit of the Lord came on him. Maybe he remembered how he decided when he was a young man the way that most young men do. When I'm going to, I know I'm going to, when I get there, when I'm on the throne, things are going to be different around here. 
I'm going to get things different and right. And sometimes he did, and sometimes he didn't. A lot of times he didn't. A lot of times he got stuff wrong. But he loved God with this stubborn love. And something inside of him said, I will dwell in the house. He didn't say, I hope someday I live in the house of the Lord. He didn't say, it may be that I'll dwell in the house of the Lord. He was a stubborn guy, this David. He had heart, and he said, I'm staying in the house. I know I may make a mess sometimes. I may spill all over the rug. I may knock down the lamps on occasion when I'm dancing and cheering, and I may break some real expensive stuff there. I know what a pain it is to have me in your house, Lord, but I'll tell you what, you're going to have to drag me out of there kicking and screaming because I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He just had this stubborn love, and most stubborn of all was his love for God. And I was, as I was thinking when I thought about David, what if God were to say to us this morning, these people, these people, they're people after my own heart. They run to Jesus when they thirst. They run to Jesus when they're weak. They run to Jesus when they're afraid or lost. They turn to me. They follow me with reckless abandon. They commit themselves to following me. They worship me from the depths of their heart. And they love me and love others with a stubborn love. <laughs> 